Amen. For those of you that don't know me, I'm John, the lead pastor here at CCC, and I want to welcome those of you who are guests this morning. It's great to have you here with us. If you're a regular attender, it's great to have you here as well, and including CCC as part of your Memorial Day weekend. Um, Also, a special announcement today. Uh, For those of you that don't know, today is my wife's birthday. She's sitting here in the front row, so please wish her a happy birthday. I don't get to do that very often, so... Doesn't she look great for 35? I mean, she just looks fabulous, so amazing, amazing. So anyways, don't get to do that very often, but I got to do it today. So I don't know about you, but I don't like to be told no. I don't like to be told no. I like to dream, I like to explore, I like to try new things, I like to see what happens. I don't like to be told no. But I've discovered that being told no sometimes keeps me safe. Sometimes it keeps me safe uh, from going down a road that could leave my car in a ditch or running down a trail in which there's something dangerous around the bend. Sometimes I'm told no to save myself from embarrassment or humiliation. Like someone in my family saying, no, you can't say that, don't you say that, or don't you dare wear those clothes out in public, you know. So sometimes no is for my physical safety, sometimes no is for my emotional safety, But sometimes I get told no because something bigger is in the works. Sometimes I get told no, you can't eat that because that's to make this great dinner for you tonight. And if you eat that food, you're not going to get what we were having for dinner. Or sometimes a parent, you say no to your kids about the snacks because why? You know something better is waiting for them. Sometimes you get told no when you want to spend money. Right? Some of you get told no. Why? Because something is coming. You're planning for something bigger and better, and you have to say, no, we're saving that. So no upgrades, because we're saving for something that's better. That's better. And so being told no is actually not a bad thing. It actually can be a very, very good thing. But when you get told no, what are you most likely to do? What are you most likely to do? Okay, how many of you just accept it and move on with life? Let me see your hands. How many just, ah, okay, I'll just move on. Only a few of you out there. Okay, here's another option. How many of you ask for an explanation and try to understand why? Okay, I'm a little bit in that camp. I want to know why. How many of you do this? You attempt to convince the other person why they should say yes. How many of you are in that camp? Okay, that's the spouses of the ones that just accepted it, right? You know, and here's the last one. How many of you ignore the signs or words to say no and do it anyways? How many of you in that camp? That's me. I'm, I'm right there. So we all do something with these no's, right? We hear them, we experience them, they come at us in all different arenas of life, and we all process them differently. But today we're going to talk about being told no, not by your parents, or by your spouse, or by friends, or your boss, but what do you do when God says no? What do you do when God says no? During the past 40 days, excuse me, the past 29 days, I've been encouraging you to be praying and asking God to do something in your life that you can't imagine how He would do it. You can't imagine how He would do it. And ask God to show up in a significant way. And several of you have shared with me amazing prayer answers to prayer that you've been praying during this time, where God has showed up in remarkable ways. And some of you, as you're sitting here listening to this and hearing me even say those words, you're wondering, Well, why hasn't God answered my prayer? Why hasn't God shown up for me? God tells me to ask, and I did. God tells me to bring my request, I did. But God didn't answer. Why not? Why not? 
Would it have been just better not to get my hopes up than to feel like the carpet got pulled out from underneath of me when I hear no? So what do you do when God says no? What do you do when God says no? We've been in this series entitled 40 Days of Prayer, and my challenge has been to ask God for something that you can't imagine how He would accomplish it. Say, God, I don't know how you're going to do anything about this, but I'm just going to pray for 40 days in a row and see if you show up. And we're on day 29 of our 40 days. Our 40 days. And while some of you have come and shared amazing and really exciting and cool answers to prayer, no one's come to me yet and said, John, what if God doesn't answer my prayer? What if God doesn't answer my prayer? What do I do? What do I do? Do I just keep praying? Do I assume I'm praying the wrong prayer? Do I stop praying? Do I throw the whole thing out the window? What do I do? Well, today we're going to look at a story in the life of Jesus when he got a no from his father, God. And we're going to discover what his response was to no. What was his response to no? If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, um, if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the seat in front of you or open an app on your device. Um, follow along in a Bible app if you have one. Uh, version is a great one to use. Uh, so Matthew 26 is where we're going to be at, uh, page 808, and the Bible's there in your seats. Um, grab one of those. So what had happened in this story, what's happening in this story is Jesus had just finished what we just participated in, the Last Supper, the celebration of Passover. Jesus had just encountered that. It had just taken place. And after Jesus finished this, he says this in verse 31. He says, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter, of course, says, Even if everybody bails on you, Jesus, not me, not me. And Jesus says, Peter, I hate to tell you this, but before you hear a rooster tonight, you're going to do this three times. Peter declared, even if I have to die, I will never disown you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So after they had finished this supper, where they were located was in the upper room, which is one of those buildings over there at the end of the Yellow Arrow. Any of those buildings could have been an upper room. All, a lot of buildings had an upper room. They don't really know where, and where that happened. But as they finished, they went with, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And so what they did is they then went down through this valley called the Kidron Valley. You can see from this aerial shot, it's a valley, it's down below. And they're going to end up over here in the Mount of Olives. That's where they're going to end, on the Mount of Olives, in this place called Gethsemane. I'm going to explain why that name in just a moment. Eventually, they'll end up in Jerusalem. They'll go back down through the valley after Jesus is captured. He'll be taken there. He'll be tried all throughout the city that night and eventually be hung on a cross there in the city of Jerusalem. And so where Jesus was, was a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And it was, a it, was on, it was on the other side of this valley. There was a huge groves of trees all over the land of Israel. And any tree you see, just about any tree you see in Israel, is going to be an olive tree. An olive tree. It's one of the main sources of revenue there. There are olive trees everywhere. Uh, when we were in Jordan, our guide told us that he consumes about a liter to a liter and a half of olive oil every week, just him personally. And so they, they eat olive oil for everything, on everything, in everything. I think they bathe in it as much as they use it. But. but the place where Jesus went was this place called Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane means an oil press. An oil press. 
There's actually nowhere in the Bible does it say Garden of Gethsemane. It doesn't say that. You're like, How, where'd that come from? Well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of this event, Jesus goes to this place called Gethsemane. When John records it, he says Jesus goes to the garden. And so they just combine those two places. And so very likely what happened, an oil press is what they would do. They would take the olives out of the trees, they would put them in this big vat, and they would have a big wheel, and they would grind this wheel. Usually a mule would pull this wheel around and crush these olives. There would be a little drain at the bottom, and it would crush it, and the oil would come out. And they would have these big presses right near where the groves were. Makes sense, doesn't it? You pick, the olive, you pick the olives, you put them in a press, you get the oil, and then they sell that and distribute it. And so there was probably a cave, they believed, that was right near the garden where there was, they found a big massive press inside of these caves back from that day. And so when Jesus went up to Gethsemane, um, he says to the rest of his disciples, I want you to sit here while I go over there and pray. And probably this was the cave outside of the, the garden, outside of this place called Gethsemane. And so he tells them to sit there, and he says to a few of the other guys, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, who were with Jesus all the time, he says, guys, I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me. And if you think about what had happened, it had been a very confusing evening. Very confusing evening. The first thing that happened is Jesus had washed their feet. That never happened before. And then Jesus talked um, about a comforter coming. They're like, who's the comforter and he's coming? Then Judas left the group abruptly. Some assumed that he was going to go pay the bill and others, Jesus made this cryptic comment to them. They're like, what was that all about? And then Judas never showed back up when they went through the valley over into the garden. All of it was pretty confusing to his followers. So he takes these three guys, Peter, James, and John, who they were kind of his sidekicks. They were went everywhere with him. They were always there with him. And Jesus says to them, he says, come on, guys, let's go over here to pray. And as Matthew records this, he says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And I was thinking to myself, what's Jesus sorrowful and troubled about Is he troubled because he knows what's coming? Is he troubled because he knows Judas is going to betray him? Is he troubled because he knows the disciples are going to abandon him? Is he troubled because Peter's going to deny him? Is he troubled because he's going to be left all alone? We're not quite sure why he's troubled. But he says to his followers, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I think one of the first things I'm struck with is how aware Jesus is of what's going on inside of him, his emotions. He says, my soul is overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. And I guess I would ask you this morning, and I would challenge you this morning, that as a follower of Jesus, if, if you're following Him as what your life is about, part of growing and maturing in your faith and in your life is being increasingly aware of what's going on inside of you. Because Jesus was, and we're supposed to be like Him. You say, well, John, I don't pay attention to that stuff. I don't really feel anything. And I would suggest to you that's a problem. Because that's not the way Jesus lived. 
He knew what was going on inside of himself to the point he could articulate it and say it. He knew that when he was feeling something in the pit of his stomach, what that was. He knew when it was a knot in his chest, what that was. He knew when he was feeling anxious and when he was feeling depressed. He knew what was going on. And so part of this story is a recognition that Jesus himself knew what was happening inside of himself. He was what we would say today, emotionally aware of what was going on. It's not a badge of honor to say, I don't feel anything or I don't really know, or it doesn't affect me. That's not a badge of honor. Um, that's not being like Jesus. But he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's like he knew this was coming. He knew this betrayal, denial, abandonment, aloneness, physical suffering, and death was coming. You know, I was thinking about this in relationship to my life and when I have felt overwhelmed. And, and usually in my life, I feel overwhelmed when things have come at me or things have happened to me and I'm struggling to handle them. It, it's, it's more than I feel like I can handle. I remember the Sunday, the Saturday and Sunday, I got a call that my father had to have emergency um, surgery on his heart out in Mon Montana, and that next morning, my aunt's doctor, his sister, called me. It's just my father and his sister, and said she has terminal cancer and she has three weeks to live. And, and I felt incredibly, incredibly overwhelmed. I don't have a very large extended family to know two of the people that are part of that are facing life-threatening issues that quickly. It was overwhelming. Overwhelming. Now some of you um, maybe have an awareness when trouble is coming. And you just have this sixth sense, if you will, of what's coming. That seems to be what Jesus knew. Because of being God as, as well as being man, He knew what was coming. But for me, the sense of over, being overwhelmed is when I've experienced things and I can't figure out what to do with those things. We've all experienced those things, haven't we? Heartache, pain, agony, betrayal, abandonment, loss that is so deep and so profound. We've all experienced that. If you experience this as a child, one of the amazing things God does for children is they have this capacity to set it aside so that their heart and their body can function in the midst of that pain. And so as a child faces those kind of difficult emotions, they have to bury it, they have to deny it, ignore it, or minimize it so they can survive. And it's only later in life when these things start to come out and actions start to surface and, and things don't make sense and they're doing things and people say, why are you doing that? I don't know why I'm doing that. And someone walks with them into that, a counselor or a therapist, and helps them understand there was some pain in your past and you've got to walk back towards that. I've spoken to a lot of people who have said to me, John... I can't go back there. You have no idea, and I don't, how painful that was. There's no way I'm going back there. Because I won't survive. And I'm here to tell you today, 
that one of the reasons that you will survive is that you have a Savior who knows this kind of pain, who knows this kind of suffering, who knows what it's like to feel abandonment and betrayal and aloneness and physical and emotional suffering. At a depth, he did not know if he would survive. Walking back into that pain will not be easy. But as you heard us talk over the last couple months, it's a pathway to forgiveness, to freedom that God wants you to walk in. And Jesus has walked that path with us. And he's walked that path for you. And he invites you to walk in it. And he says, I'll be with you. But notice what he says to his followers. He says, I want you to stay here, guys. And I want you to keep watch. Two things he says. I want you to stay here and I want you to keep watch. The stay here, that makes sense. Jesus says to them, I don't want to be alone when I'm facing the darkest, most difficult thing in my life. He doesn't say, take this for me. He just says, be with me. Be with me. And for some of you that are lone rangers, for some of you that say, I'm just going to deal with my stuff alone again, I want to challenge you that Jesus said, I can't do this alone, just I need you to be with me. In one of the darkest struggles of my life over this past year, I tapped a couple guys on the shoulder and I said, guys, I have no idea what's going to happen, I just need you to be with me. And they came and they were with me. Again, this is what Jesus did, and he calls us to be like him. But then he says, I want you to keep watch. Keep watch. Now, why would you keep watch? Why would you keep watch? Well, you might keep watch if there's trouble coming, right? And so I want you to keep watch, make sure trouble's coming. Or if you're having a surprise, I want you to keep watch, let me know if they're coming. Seems kind of odd that Jesus doesn't say, guys, I want you to pray for me. He doesn't say that seems odd that Jesus doesn't say, I want you to battle evil. Pray that I'll be safe. He says, I want you to keep watch. I want you to keep watch. And I wondered why. Why? Well, I think the first thing that Jesus pictures for us when we look at His prayer is He pictures His request in verse 39. He says, he went a little bit further by himself, fell on his face to the ground, and he prayed, my father, my father. He didn't say, oh, father. He didn't say, father. He said, my father. He speaks of a relationship that he has with God. And so as you think about this whole question of talking to God and communicating with God, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that this grows out of a relationship. Grows out of a relationship. You know, my son's away on a trip this weekend, and uh, he accidentally just dialed me in the middle of worship, so I'm ratting on him this morning, you know. But he knows he can call me anytime. Say, Dad, I need this. Can you help me? Can you help me? And so when we talk about this whole idea of when God says no, some people wonder, why did God say no? And, and, and 
some people forget about the fact that God invites us into a relationship. And that's what Jesus had with the Father. But he goes on to say, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. What do you mean by the cup? He was just up in the upper room, and they passed the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood. And I would think it's a picture of the suffering that Jesus is about to take. And Jesus says, God, if it's possible, can you take this cup, which represents the suffering that he's about to endure, can you take this away? Can we swap this one out? Maybe you could just use an actual lamb, a perfect lamb. I'm sure you could find one in Jerusalem. You could probably even find several dozen of them in Jerusalem that could take my place. Then he closes with this request. He said, I'm willing to do whatever you want, God. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. He then goes back and finds his guys, and they're zonked out. And uh, it's no surprise, no surprise. I mean, they're in the Middle East, so they're likely out in the heat all day long. They just had a great meal, an intense emotional discussion, and what did you expect the men to be doing? Sleeping, right? Sleeping. Now, I'm going to assume there was no ladies at this gathering, because they would have been processing everything that happened, you know. Where did Judas go? Anybody know where Judas went? Anybody know where Judas went? Anybody talk to Judas? What in the world is Judas doing? Why isn't he not back by now? And what did Jesus mean by that thing? You know, go and do what you got to do quickly. Did anybody figure that out? Anybody piece that together yet? You know, they would have been busy. So I'm assuming there's no ladies in this setting. It's just the guys. Just the guys. But they're out cold. They're out cold. And Jesus kind of reams them out a little bit. He says, guys, couldn't you even stay awake for an hour? He said, I just need you to be here. To do what? There's that phrase again. Keep watch. Keep watch. Can you just keep watch for one hour? That's all I needed, guys. That's all I needed. And then he changes the request slightly. He says, I want you to watch. And now he adds in pray. Adds in pray. I could understand if he said, guys, I want you to pray. And they fell asleep praying. I won't ask how of how many of you that has happened to. But, uh, you know, but to, to watch, to be up kind of keeping guard and they zonk out, you know. But now he says, guys, I want you to watch and pray. And he gives a reason. Finally, you get a reason. So that you, not Jesus, so that you will not enter into temptation. So that you will not enter into temptation. And I thought, what would they be tempted to do? What would they be tempted? He's telling them to watch. So you have to assume that there's kind of trouble on the horizon. There's trouble coming. He said, I want you to keep your eyes open, guys. And then he says, so you won't fall into temptation. I thought there's probably two things that he would fall into. And we're pretty familiar with them when trouble comes our way. It's called fight or flight, right? What do we do when trouble comes? Fight or flight. And so what was one of the things when trouble came? What might the disciples do? Run away, right? Run away. Maybe hide, right? Maybe quit. Say, I don't know that guy. Right? Um, Maybe... Instead of flight, maybe some of them would fight. Maybe one of them would pull out a sword. Maybe one of them would whack somebody's ear off. Maybe one of them would try to defend Jesus. And so he says, guys, I want you to pray that you don't get tempted to do something that's not really part of the plan. Not really part of the plan. And then he says, you're going to want to, but it's going to be really hard. You're going to want to, but it's going to be really hard. 
really hard. And then he goes back to his praying. He goes off and he prays again a second time. And even though we don't have any record of Jesus and God conversing, the prayer changes. But the situation didn't change. So the prayer the first time and the prayer the second time, they're different prayers, but we have no record of God talking to Jesus. Somehow that happened. I don't know how or when, but somehow there was some engagement with the Father here. Because look at the second prayer. There it is again. He says, my Father, again, personal, intimate relationship with the Father. And now the second prayer, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken. Remember what he said in the first prayer? What do you say in the first prayer? If it's possible. He throws in the word not. If it's not possible. If it's not possible. You almost got a sense that God had said to him, Jesus, this is my plan. Jesus, this is my plan. And then Jesus says, if it's not possible, if there's no other way, then he says, I'll drink this cup. I'll drink this cup. Um, and then he closes by saying, may your will be done. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to surrender my plans, my way, my struggle with this, and I'm going to do it. When God says no, what is Jesus' response? Is Jesus' first response, that doesn't make any sense, God. Why would you take me out of the picture? Why'd you take me out of the picture? I'm supposed to be the savior of the world. Does he say, why can't you do it for me? Does he say, do I need more prayer, more faith? What will it take? No, he doesn't say any of those things. What does Jesus say at the end of the verse? He says this, may your will be done. Let's say it together. May your will be done. That's what he says. Instead of demanding his will, he surrenders to the Father's will. So when God says no, the question for you is, are you willing to surrender? When God says no to your prayer, are you willing to surrender? As I think about that and talk about that, for some of you, that's really hard. That's really hard. Because for some of you, no's have been abused. And no's have been trampled on. And some of you had a parent misuse their authority and now to submit to someone else's authority is not something you want to do. Some of you have lost your voice and your choice at the hands of abusers and so when someone says, will you submit, will you surrender even to God, you say, John, you don't know what you're asking me to do. Some of you have had someone in a position of authority professionally, relationally, physically stronger, or spiritually misuse that authority. And now that God is asking you to surrender, it feels a little bit like dying to you. It would have been much easier just to never to ask. That's why I don't ask God for these things. It's too hard. It's too hard. When you surrender, what are you saying with your surrender? What are you saying? Are you saying you're powerless? Are you saying you're helpless? Are you saying you're hopeless? I don't think Jesus is saying any of those things. What you're saying is you surrender to God is that you believe God is something better, something more significant, something more amazing and more remarkable than you can ever imagine, and you're willing to trust Him that it's going to become a reality. 
When my wife says to me, don't eat that because I needed to make this meal and I choose not to, I'm trusting that she has all the other ingredients and she's not just trying to starve me. (laughs) She never would do that. Although she does say don't touch that food sometimes. Right? I'm believing, I'm trusting that she has something better. Right? Just like when you say, no, don't eat that, then it'll ruin your what? Appetite, right? Because you know there's something better, and then that will follow. You know that. But when God says no, what do we do? Throw up our hands. Why bother? What's the point? What's the point? And God says, no. God says, I have something better. I have something for you. I'm not trying to take something from you. I thought to myself, what if God accepted Jesus' request and says, okay, Jesus, I know what I'm asking you. It's way above. I've never asked anyone to do this before. What would we have lost? We would have lost someone who could empathize in our suffering, no matter how deep and how bad it is. We would have lost his life, his purpose, his mission would have been derailed. We would have lost salvation for all of mankind. If God would have accepted Jesus' no. But what did Jesus do? He left them and went away one more time, prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said, Are you still sleeping? Look, it's time. The Son of Man is delivered in the hands of sinners. He said, it's time. He accepted that God had a bigger plan and God had something in mind for him. No one likes to hear no. But when you hear no from God, what do you do? Do you toss God aside? Do you toss your trust in God aside? Do you make life work on your own? Decide it's not worth desiring something from God and you just bury your desire. Say, I'm not just not going to want anything and then I'll never be disappointed. Say, John, how do I know if God's saying no? How do I know? Well, one of the ways you know if God's saying no is if the Bible clearly says say no. You know? You're saying, God, make this relationship work out and and you're a Christ follower and that guy or that girl has no relationship with Jesus. God says, that's not the relationship for you. It starts with you having a relationship with someone who has a relationship with Jesus. Sometimes the Bible clearly says no. Sometimes you go to your small group and you say to your small group, I've been praying about this, I've been asking God to mount this, and, and you go to the group and you say, what do you guys think about this? And they look at you like, are you off your rocker? You know? Or you say, hey, would you sit with this and pray about this? And they do, and they come back and say, I don't think God wants you to do this, and the whole group says it. I mean, that's what the Puritans used to do, a group of Christ followers decades ago, you know, centuries ago. They would come to their group and say, It's called discernment. They would say, I need discernment about this decision in my life. And they trusted someone other than themselves. Say, what do you you think? Would you pray with me about this? Would you pray with me about this? See where God's taking me? Another one is prompting from God's Spirit. God just kind of gives you a nudge and says, nope, not that direction. And that happened to me this week. I was praying about something I was really troubled by and trying to come up with my own plan. And and God just kind of gave me a nudge and said, nope, this this is how you need to love them. 
That's how you need to love them. Stop trying to come up with a plan. That's how you need to love them. Maybe God's silent. God's silent. You don't hear a word from God. No opening, no direction. Maybe you just stop thinking about it. God says, no. No. And so I want to ask you this question. Where in your life right now is God saying no? Where in your life is God saying no? Is there a relationship that God's saying no, and you need to surrender that to Him, trusting that He has something more significant down the road that you can't see right now? What career direction is God saying no to you? He's saying no. Not right now. And you need to surrender that to him, trusting that he has something more significant for you as part of his plan down the road. What financial desire or dream is God saying? No. And you need to surrender that, trusting he has something more significant down the road. What ministry plan God's saying no, and you need to surrender that and trust that he has more something significant down the road. You see, surrender is not putting my hands up and saying, I give up, I'm not doing anything. That's not what surrender is. Surrender is releasing this to God and saying, God, I trust that you have something more significant, that you have a story and a plan for my life that you're writing that I don't know the details of yet. And I'm just going to wait and see what you're going to do. So where in your life is God saying no? And then will you surrender to his will and to his way? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads um, with me. And as you bow your heads, um, just want to take a moment and give you a chance to talk to God about where God might be saying to you today. Will you surrender? God, often the things we're asking you for are good things. We're asking for a relationship to be restored. We're asking for your direction. We're asking for your guidance. We're asking for you to meet a need. Um, to heal a broken heart. To free us from addiction. Um, to walk with us in our suffering and so God, often the things we're asking you for are good things. We're not asking for a Ferrari or a boat. Or... And so God, when you say no, times it's really confusing to us. Because we sing songs like, good, good father, and we sing about your goodness and faithfulness and, and, and your desire to to give and to bless. And when we don't experience that, God, we can't figure out what you're doing. We're so tempted to just want to throw up our hands and just bail. So God, whatever it is you brought into our hearts this morning, as I pose that question, where are you saying no? God, can you... Give us the ability to open our hands 
even physically right now, and say, God, I'm releasing this to you. Trusting that you have something far greater, far more significant, that you are about to do. God, help us.